0: Welcome to the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Podcast Series on Pediatric Pap Adherence. This is the third podcast in the series. Today we will discuss medication utilization for pap desensitization and sleep initiation and maintenance in special pediatric patient populations. This podcast includes pediatric pulmonary, psychology, and sleep specialists nationally and is an open discussion of our different practices between practitioners and patients. Our panel includes, in no particular order, Dr. Kelly Lee Harford, pediatric psychologist, and Dr. Roberta Liu, pediatric sleep physician at the Emory and Children's Pediatric Institute in Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. Wendy Ward, pediatric psychologist, and Dr. Supriya Jambikar, pediatric pulmonologist at Arkansas Children's in Little Rock, Arkansas, Dr. Allison Clark, pediatric psychologist, and Dr. Stephen Sheldon at... Anne and Robert H. Laurie, Children's Hospital of Chicago and the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Daniel Lewin, pediatric psychologist and sleep specialist at the Sleep Health and Wellness Center in Santa Barbara, California. Miriam Weiss, pediatric nurse practitioner at Chil- uh, Children's National in Washington, D.C., Doctors Marnie Nagel and Amy Moores, pediatric sleep psychologist at CHOP Children's Hospital, and I am Dr. Ashana Chin, pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician at CHOP Children's. I am part of the ATS SRN committee. For everyone's titles, please listen to the introduction in our first podcast. We will have an open discussion on the role of medications to improve pap desensitization and sleep initiation and maintenance. For our practice at CHOC Children's for select populations like autism, we have found the utilization of melatonin to be beneficial in assisting with pap tolerance and sleep initiation and maintenance having the benefit of a dedicated autism center, neurology, psychiatry, and psychology departments, we have often found that addressing these concerns first and then focusing on PAP adherence has led to utilization long-term. Often holding on PAP therapy while families focus on their psychiatric or neurologic and even social concerns first has been beneficial. Though we too care for an older patient population up to twenty-two years of age, we have not utilized other sleep aids despite some studies showing that they may be beneficial initially at improving PAP adherence.
1: I don't think I've ever used medication. Yeah, I, refer I was just refer them to Ali.
2: I was gonna chime in from more of the behavioral perspective. I guess one of the things that we see is um Certainly, medications can help them with sleep initiation and less resistance at bedtime with putting the equipment on. But the challenge that we see is um, if they're relying on that, then, you know, they come to an end of the sleep cycle and they're not as tired and they wake up and take the mask off. So I think if we don't achieve that desensitization first, like with daily practice and all of those things, um, it ultimately is not usually successful, at least not for the duration of the night in my experience, Um, but certainly there are times when it's more medically necessary when we would consider, yeah, the addition of a medication.
3: We've used hydroxyzine a few times, um, partly because one is if there is any nasal congestion allergies going on, so there's a medical part to it. It helps with anxiety and calming the patient down. Um, It helps with some sleep. So I've seen hydroxyzine work. Of course, when we started, we try to stop it. Once they've started uh, using it, I've been able to stop it in multiple patients. Um, first of all, we don't start it on all patients. We started if need be, if there's a uh, you know specific component of problems initiating sleep because of the pressure. So in that case, we've tried. Also, we've done a few inpatient desensitizations, and we've used hydroxyzine during those, and then uh, when we discharge, we try to stop this medication, but I've not used clonidine or any other medications.
0: At least I don't remember. It's usually hydroxyzine if at all. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that that it's probably optimal to really do a very, very careful diagnosis in some of these more complex patients. So it really brings out anxiety from some sensory sensitivity. um, and, And a lot of
1: work can be done behaviorally there if there is someone who can do that work. I think similarly, we work on the desensitization for quite a while. And it's usually when Dr. Harford says, we have hit a road <laughs> we've hit a, hit a wall and um this is just not going to work we've tried similar medications to what y'all have discussed but i would say i haven't seen it really work what do you same thing yeah you know i think so
4: i've i've been a three different institutions, I would say at this point, um, doing this work, and it's really varied um, at all three. You know, I think in all of the patients, when we do anything, once everything else isn't working, it's less likely to work. So, um, you know, in the places where I feel like medication has been prescribed earlier to help the process, it sometimes does work better, and who knows, maybe those patients would have done better fine without the medication anyway, um but then when we've kind of exhausted everything and we're like let's just throw some medicine at it that usually doesn't really work either um so I mean that's I guess my experience with medicine is that I have seen sometimes it can help to speed the process of desensitization in patients that we feel urgency about um and um that that does sometimes seem to help um but when we kind of Like are grasping at straws and using it, then it it, it doesn't really seem to help in.
2: I agree with Dr. Harford. I think my experience historically is that those meds were used a lot 10, 15 years ago, much less so now, strategically so now. I have had a few patients who've really benefited from a clonidine, from um, uh, something related to anxiety at night, or um, the hydroxyzine probably more more often than the others, <clears throat> but as behavioral techniques have become more and more commonly available, and we have more experience with these meds, I think we've been moving away from those and more towards the behavioral techniques. And I would just
1: add, I think many of our patients with co-occurring psychiatric conditions, who are being monitored regularly by their psychiatrists that might have a comorbidity with um, a significant anxiety disorder. Um, Rarely do, do we prescribe it specifically for pap desensitization, but if it is being used as part of a full treatment approach, for the underlying psychiatric condition, and they are compliant with that part of their uh, psychiatric treatment, then it certainly is also very helpful in adding in this new component that can be really challenging. So I think what we find sometimes is, unfortunately, we have patients with co-occurring psychiatric conditions that are not being well, that part of their whole health is not being well managed. And so it's trying to connect those patients with a mental health home that can really provide clearly coordinated care for that aspect, and then the PAP treat compliance will come along with that, but sometimes we have to take a step back and say, "We have this larger underlying condition that really needs some attention first.
2: We have some data that depression in particular has an impact on. Uh, adherence in general, and that we might want to be more aggressive in treating that, um, including a psychiatric referral or psychotropic medication. The other thing I was going to say that is anecdotal, uh, I've had more than a few ADHD kids when we appropriately medicate them during the day, their sleep onset and their ability to sustain sleep at night improves dramatically, which of course helps with pap adherence. So, um why that happens, I'm not totally sure, but uh, I have seen it.
0: This is now the end of this podcast, and we would like to thank you for joining us.